Today I will be reading from Mark 10, 17 through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Um, you know, technology has got uh, some disadvantages, some dangers, but that glowing rectangle in our pocket um, has one major uh, advantage, and that's the maps feature. I, I don't know where I'd be without it, literally. Um, Natalie and I were visiting uh, some friends a uh, while back, and uh, they happened to live on some uh, new construction. And so Google didn't do a very good job, and uh, we ended up in another neighborhood and, and so forth. So next time we visited those friends, um, I anticipated the same thing happening. And so I actually called ahead and said, hey, I'm a little shaky again. And, you know, there's two sets of directions. You know, there's the, you know, go northwest by this far, turn now type directions. And then there's the good old boy version of directions, you know, like going down to the, you know, the Royal Farms and, you know, and take a, you know, what road is that? Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's just, just go to the, you know, there's that kind of a directions. Well, it, it shifted to that new level. You know, so now the directions were not um, go this far and turn left. It was like, yeah, you'll see um, three mailboxes in a row and uh, normally a couple trash cans. Um, it's right after that. If you, if you see that sign, you've gone too far. You know, don't go past the pine tree. You know, so there's, there's that level of direction. Now, when we call somebody for directions, we want them to be uh, authoritative. And we want them to give us personal attention. And I think that's why people approach Jesus. Because they sense his authority. And they sensed his experience. In today's passage, there are several people who ask Jesus questions. And each time Jesus takes time with every one of them and he takes them seriously. So let me just say this. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. I don't care how big they are. They could be major worldview questions like, where did we come from? That speaks to our origin. Why are we here? That speaks to meaning. Where are we going? That speaks to our destiny. And uh, what is right and what is wrong? And that speaks to morality. Our passage today is focused on one of those questions. It actually touches a couple of them, but majorly on one of them. And the question of where are we going? Now, the word cloud that you'll see here shows the nature of, of that question, these destiny questions. So the reason I think that the passage covers like more than just the conversation with this man who approaches Jesus, but also some of the disciples' questions, is the words that we find throughout. So you look at the words here, and you see eternal life. It's a destiny question. Saved, heaven, kingdom, where are we going? So today, my goal is for you to, um, I invite you to listen in as Jesus answers some of these 
big, big questions related to destiny. And I hope that you will leave challenged, because every time you get a brush with Jesus, <laughs> you leave challenged. He, he surprises almost every time. And I hope we'll also have our understanding deepened, especially about the kingdom. Verse 17 through 22. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus steps out of the house, and uh, he, is, he is approached by this man in a really urgent way. As he ran up, and he knelt before him. Did that startle Jesus? <laughs> or does this happen all the time because he's Jesus? Well, it, it doesn't really say. But the man calls him good teacher. So he gives him this title of honor. So here's a man who is really, really urgent. Here's a man who senses Jesus' authority, and he says, Jesus can speak to my question. But Jesus immediately engages this man with a question of his own. And the question is an interesting one. It kind of puzzles us a little bit. Um, But really, this is a great thing because it shows that immediately Jesus picks up on where this man is at and begins to explore with him. And, And so Jesus engages this man and he challenges him on this assumption that is betrayed by the man's use of this word good, good teacher. You know, if you've ever had a really, really good teacher or a really good debater, and not, not in a bad way, but they force you to define your terms. They'll just ask you questions like, what, what do you mean by that? And sometimes it, it forces some of your assumptions out into the open. Well, that's, that's what's happening here. It's kind of easy to misunderstand what Jesus is doing here when he says, you know, why do you call me good? Um, it appears that Jesus may be taking issue with being called good. Don't call me good. Yeah, probably not. Or it may even look like he's denying his divinity. Like, the only one that's good is God. You know, don't, don't call me that. Or he may be making a random point about his divinity and saying, hey, you're right, I am good, and only God is good. Gotcha. But I don't think that's what's happening here either. What Jesus is doing, when the man uses that term good, Jesus has determined that the guy is assuming something here. Um, that he deems that he has found the teacher that is worthy of fielding his questions. And so he seems to know that the man approaching him is kind of as one good man to another. In other words, I'm a good man. You're a good teacher. You can get a guy like me the answers that I need. And so Jesus immediately raises the bar on good. He moves it beyond good to perfect as his father is perfect. What Jesus is doing is questioning the man's premise that he's a good man or that any man or woman is good for that matter. Now, there is a bit of dramatic irony here because we know that Jesus is both good and God, but the man may not have known that. But he's just, he's just saying, like, hang on a second here. Let me bring you up short. Let me make you think about what you're saying. And here's what the man may have been thinking, like, huh, well, if only God is good and good is not something you're supposed to just apply to any human teacher, well, if even this good teacher is not then maybe I'm not, I'm not perfect like God is perfect. And so everything that he was assuming all of a sudden is on its ear. And so Jesus just basically says, I'm going to take good off of the table, you know, as one of the ways that we can inherit eternal life. Well, the man doesn't answer or it doesn't record his answer, but Jesus says in effect, okay, I'm just going to leave that here and move on. So he starts to address the man in 19 and 20. You know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, 
Don't steal, false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. The man asked what he must do. Did you notice that question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus begins to tell him some things that you can do, all right? And uh, these are laws right here that Jesus quotes right here. They're laws that can be kept, and they were meant to be kept. If you look at them, you can avoid killing people, cheating on your spouse, stealing things that are not yours, perjuring yourself on the witness stand, um, honoring your parents, and uh, not saying bad things about them, and defrauding. Now, actually, the Ten Commandments has covetousness, no, don't covet. And uh, so this kind of points us to the direction that this guy is probably a rich landowner. And the way that a rich landowner could covet somebody's stuff is by taking it from them through deceit. And so he's kind of like tailoring it to this, this man. But all of these are possible to keep. And the man says he's done so. Maybe he senses that there's more, and there is. Verse 21, and Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I want you to notice the look there. It says Jesus looking at him, loved him. He looks him hard in the eye. He he gazes into his soul and he loves him. Jesus sees that this seeker is not like the Pharisees that were trying to trip him up all the time. This was a sincere man. He was asking real questions. And so he decides to give him real answers. And if you're tracking, you're saying like Ten Commandments. You know, I think he just listed about six of them. There's a couple of them missing or something. Yes, there were. And Jesus is going to circle back around to some of those big, big commandments. And they're this. Don't have idols. Love God with all your heart and don't take God's name in vain. So here we have it. And the other one is, uh, remember the Sabbath day, but he's not going to address that right now. Now, taking the name of vain, already he has said, don't take a title that only belongs to God, good, and apply it to a mere teacher. And so basically that's saying, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. But these other two, idols, and loving God, I don't really see them in this verse that, that is before me here. Well, when he says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, Jesus is putting his finger on this man's idol. He is giving him a literal invitation to sell everything he has and join him and the disciples and come travel around Palestine with him. And Jesus knows that this is the thing. This is his idol. So just like, just like Jeff prayed, we don't have gold-plated idols all the time, right? We have many different ones, and he says, this one is yours. You can't have idols before me. Loving God, where is that in this text? We find it in this call of Jesus to come follow me, and this is astonishing. Jesus connects obeying the greatest commands in the law with obeying him. He answers the question, what must I do? Do to inherit eternal life with this. The one thing that you can do is love God. You can follow me. The law that we do turns out to be whatever Jesus says it is and however he applies it to us. 
In the back room there, there's a uh, machine. It's called an auto scrubber. Some people call it the Zamboni. So this thing can do the work of six men with a mop in you know, a fraction of the time. It's a, it's a powerful machine. Uh, problem is, a couple weeks ago, the key went missing. Little red plastic key. I mean, who goes and says, I think I'll take this little red plastic key. But it's just gone. And so this powerful machine is sitting here, unable to be used because of this key. Kids, if you got that key... <laughs> No, we got, we got another key. But, but Jesus is saying here, I have the key. You cannot run anything without me. Everything is under the authority of Jesus. You know, he is saying, I direct the greatest commands of the law. You know, love God, love your neighbor. I apply them to you. He gets to direct it all. Just think about that. It's impossible to overstate the authority of Jesus. Jesus is absolutely, in terms of morality and destiny, he says, I get to apply it. You know, so, folks, either Jesus is, like, authoritative or else he is an insane megalomaniac. It's one of the two. And if we say, no, I don't think he's insane, I I think he has authority, then that means that everything depends on my response to him. Everything. There's no room for the view that says that Jesus is just a great teacher or that he's just a man or that he's just another enlightened voice that will point me to my higher deity. He leaves no room for that. He says, I get to direct the greatest commands in your life. Verse 22. The man's response, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You know, whatever else the man expected Jesus to say, he didn't expect that. His face falls and he walks away. It is kind of interesting here that uh, it's only now that we learn that this man is rich. Now the other accounts um, of the Gospels, one of them says that he's rich, and one of them says that he's young, and one says he's a ruler, okay? So, so now we get this idea that this is the rich young ruler. But just here we learn that he is rich for the first time. You know, there are times where uh, you go to the doctor and you hope that he's going to prescribe you something that can be just taken with a pill. Here, take this for two weeks and whatever symptoms you have will go away. But, but instead, uh, she orders you like a whole battery of invasive tests. And you're like, yeah, I think I can live with this a little bit longer. But like a doctor, Jesus comes and he touches this man's broken area. And he says, could this be the problem? And the man says, I can't, to, I can't take that diagnosis. You know, and really, we're wincing for this guy. I mean, think about what he was asked to do. That was quite the prescription. But this offer was genuine. This was a literal invitation to join the disciples in following Jesus. You know, you could play a little bit of what if here. If he had accepted Jesus' authority, if he had said, you know, I'm going to start there. I do believe that he is the good teacher. I am going to take his authority. Then I'm going to take whatever prescription he gives me. And so if he had taken him at his authority, he would have taken his words. And here's the thing. Jesus would have empowered him to do it and given him joy throughout And it's amazing, we could even know this man's name today. His name may have been recorded in Scripture as one of the disciples, but he wasn't willing to take step one. 
So what must I do to inherit eternal life? Inheriting eternal life is a matter of placing myself under the authority of Jesus. The next question is kind of embedded in the kind of the end of the text. And so we're just going to walk through this passage until we get there. All right, we will get to it. You note takers, you'll have to like swing back around and, you know, right at the top. Jesus looks around and says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus looks around and his disciples are gaping at him. They just got their mouths open, just... They're watching this man walk away. They just can't believe he let such a great prospect get away. Just think how his his riches could make things easier. I mean, Judas must have been like, oh, come on. You know, I hold the bag here. But Jesus instead addresses them and says how difficult it is for somebody with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You know, the destiny words that we, we talked about, that word cloud, there's one master concept. So you saw all the different words, but Jesus, Jesus said this phrase three times in verses 23, 24, and 25. Enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So of all those destiny words, this one, that's the principle right there. That's the governing principle. Because if you manage to enter the kingdom of God, then you will have rewards, you'll have eternal life, you'll have heaven, and you will be saved. This idea of the kingdom of God, it's a, it's, a, it's a big concept. I just want to take a second here to just remind us what it is because people fill that with all kinds of stuff. A major principle in the New Testament, and you'll find this all throughout it, if you just do a search of age, you'll see two different periods of time, this age and the age to come. Now, Galatians 1.4 calls this this present evil age. The present age is a time in which God's will is not being done perfectly. His moral will is not being done. It is being broken all the time. Not by everybody, but it is being broken often. Now, the age to come is the time in which God's will is being done perfectly by everybody all the time. It's like what we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we praying for there? We're asking that the, the, this age to come will be moving in on us right now so that God's will will be done on earth as it is all the time in heaven. But that is being broken through. And as we heard from uh, Blake last week, even, even though we are in this present evil age, the kingdom is already starting to break through. It's starting to bring more and more individuals under its influence. It's starting to take more and more of our submission to it um, as God works through his word. And so the kingdom we're talking about is the one that is, is breaking into this age and uh, will be fully realized in the age to come. Now, why all the amazement from the disciples at Jesus' insistence that it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? This can only be explained by their view of riches. The scripture has tons to say about money. And... Often, it warns about the dangers of money, but many, many times it talks about the blessing of money. The disciples may have been aware of Proverbs 10, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And so, they have kind of a lopsided view of wealth. They view that it just basically always means the blessing of God. 
And so they're amazed when he says that it's difficult for a rich man to enter and sends one of them away because what they saw was here is a man, a rich man, a man blessed by God who was sincere, law-abiding, pious, gave alms, stored up treasure. In other words, this was a prime candidate for the kingdom. And the reason they're standing there just being so amazed because they are thinking like, if this guy can't inherit eternal life, then who can? Well, if we thought that Jesus would listen to their amazement and soften things, no, not at all. He gives this illustration, awesome illustration. You've probably heard of it before. Even if you haven't been around the Bible, you've probably heard about the camel going through the eye of the needle in uh, verse 25. You know, really, don't try to figure out how this is, is possible, all right? So some of you may have heard in a Bible study, you know, like, well, there's actually this gate that's called the eye of the needle, and if a camel can't get through it unless he takes it, no, no, don't worry about that, guys. This, this, the point, that gate wasn't until, like, later on, all right? The point here is it is absolutely impossible. And if you think about it, it's a little bit funny. What's impossible, according to Jesus, is for a rich man to enter the kingdom on his own merit. And so, now comes the question number two. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, then who can be saved? The result was that they were even more astonished than they were previously. And this means that Jesus' lesson and his example landed on them. And again, this astonishment flows from the fact that they think that riches equals blessing. To, man, to them, this guy is pious and wealthy, and God has blessed him. And so that kind of makes sense of their question. They're asking, then who, and I've supplied in the world, because I really think it's in there, who in the world can be saved? If he can't, a man this blessed by God, this pious, then who can? And that is a great question. I'm really glad that we get to listen in. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. According to Jesus, we are all in the same boat, no matter how our economic status is. We can't enter the kingdom without help. And I'm saying help with a capital H. You can just as soon stuff a camel through the eye of a needle as pull it off yourself. Humanly speaking, it is impossible my wife says I have a problem. I've got this fascination with forbidding bodies of water. So you know George Bailey looking down at the raging river? Like I'm, I'm sitting there going like, yeah, I think I could survive that. Um, I, I go to a harbor, you know, and I'm kind of, I'm looking at like just like the dankest, awful water and thinking like, yeah, I think maybe I could, I could get through that. I could, yeah. I, you guys have been to old Newcastle and gone to that pier, you know, looking across the Delaware. And I just kind of look at the eddies. Like, how much current is under there? You know, and it's going around the piers. And, and I'm a pretty strong swimmer. I think, like, yeah, I could probably make it across. But what if you weren't a swimmer? Like, you didn't know how to swim at all, and you were fully clothed, and you are standing there at the pier, and you're thinking, like, I'm going to try to swim across this river. And you think, like, well, no, it's not going to happen. You're, you're, you're a goner. It'd be a disaster. Well, I want you to imagine a ferryman pulling up and uh, inviting that person onto his boat and says, I'll take you across the river. Well, when Jesus says, but not with God, for all things are possible with God, God's the river man. He is the agent. So if you want to enter the kingdom, if you want to get from this shore to that shore, 
You have one chance. It's God who can take you across. And it's no problem for him. He's the God who threads camels. Does God do this miracle? Yeah, yeah, he does. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? Elsewhere, we read of a rich man who fits through the eye of a needle through his repentance. Luke records this. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus says that me and the Father... That is what we do. We do the impossible. It's what I came to do. Then who in the world can be saved? That's the question. We see the one who can be saved is the one who realizes that being saved is a work of God and not merit. You know, I'm going to pause for a second here and just say how glad I am that Jesus answers these questions. I'm glad he doesn't duck. I'm glad he tells us You know, who in the world can be saved? How do I inherit eternal life? Well, he says, follow Jesus. Put ourselves under his authority. Who can be saved? Nobody. Nobody can be saved if you trust your own resources, but anybody if you trust in God because he does the impossible. A third question is found in the next section. It's actually uh, kind of implied. And uh, surprise, guess who voices it? Our buddy Peter. Peter, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. So here's the implied question. What about us? You know, sounds like Peter's gearing up for his speech, and then he kind of loses his nerve. He began to say, and remember, like, Peter is actually dictating this to, to, to John Mark to record. So this is Peter's recollection of this. And uh, he began to say, but there's a question in here. What about us? You know, that rich guy back there, you know, you, you called him to, like, follow you. We did that, right? We left everything. Right, Jesus? Jesus' lack of rebuke is significant. You know, every time Peter opens his mouth now, I'm bracing myself, right? <laughs> He's been called Satan, and God himself has said, shut up, Peter, and listen to him. But here, he doesn't get rebuked. This means that he wasn't out of line for once. This is a valid question, and Jesus doesn't correct him. For once, we get to view the disciples as a positive example of what it means to leave everything. They left professions. They left their soft beds at home, if they were soft, I don't know. They left their shelter. They left their boats. They left their nets. They left their money tables, and they actually are following Jesus around Palestine. They left all. So by not saying, yeah, Peter, no, you didn't leave all. Jesus is actually saying, noted, noted, you did. But then he goes on immediately and he adds something to that. He says, your sacrifice, though, it's actually an investment. We see this in verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who is left. Here goes a list. Houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Ah, and the age to come, eternal life. 
When Jesus wants to make a solemn pronouncement, he'll say something like truly. It just means mark my words. Okay, whatever's going to come out of his mouth next is significant. He says, mark my words. Every sacrifice, everything you give up, you will get back 100-fold. And so he lists one of the benefits, brothers and sisters, etc. Um, notice he didn't say wives, so spouses, you can breathe a collective sigh of relief. But one commentator calls this an ever-expanded spiritual family. An ever-expanding spiritual family. And so Jesus is saying, like, you get an immediate investment. Every mom or dad who's turned their back on you, you get a hundred spiritual moms and dads. Every brother and sister who says, I'm not following you, what are you doing? You get a hundred And it is so true. Like when you travel across the world and you meet a brother or sister in Christ, you immediately connect. Have you ever had that experience? Where you meet just like a random stranger and find out they follow Jesus too, and all of a sudden you have that connection. And it may be in a situation, I've been invited in someone's house before and slept in their hammock. You know, it's just like such a moving experience. And this is a benefit that we have. He says that the manner of it is going to come with persecutions. You know, the community of the gospel that, that Mark was receiving were living under the shadow of a guy named Nero. An obvious example of living in this present evil age. I think it just points out that every investment is going to have some risk, and that's the risk. But the risk is mixed with incredible joy of this ever-expanding spiritual family. He says, in this time, this is the investment you'll get. So you don't have to wait for investment. It starts yielding returns immediately. But he also points out that in the age to come, eternal life. And so it comes full circle. Remember the rich man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, these are the ones who get eternal life. The ones who have left all. This setting all things right is sometimes called the great reversal. This is when God takes everything and he sets it right. He flips it on his ear. And Jesus expresses that in verse 31. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The great reversal. The rich who are first in this age who will not lose their lives, will not leave it, will be last. And the persecuted disciples who left everything will inherit eternal life. What about us? The answer to that question is this. Those who have left all are repaid, you could say a hundredfold, in a great reversal. So what about you? Have you left all to follow Jesus? Maybe you're like the disciples and you say, well, I hope so. I I hope I have. I I don't know if I've done enough. I don't even know what that looks like in this age. Maybe we can bridge the gap between centuries if we view leaving all as this. I found this phrase so helpful. Leaving all means leaving things that present roadblocks to faith and trust in God. That idol that Jesus pointed out, um, it takes different shapes. For the rich man, it was his possessions. It was the thing that was standing between him and actually following Jesus. But it's going to look different for us. It could, be, it could be family. It could be our family. It may be that you are standing on the precipice and you're thinking like, if I follow Jesus, if I get 
baptized into this, they will say, I have left a faith. They may literally, and I hear that this is true. Some of you may come from countries where this is true. This would be your reality. They would literally hold a funeral for you. You are dead. You lose your inheritance. If you did this and were baptized into Christ, you would lose your family. You would cease to be Irish or whatever. You, you would, they would say, like, you have betrayed everything. It's possible that some of you have other idols. It may be that faith tradition where you, you, you grew up in a faith tradition that was a very, very respected one. And you thought this, you know, it kind of like locked you in, like this was right. And, and all of a sudden you're being confronted with Jesus and that this is a relationship and I need to be transformed by the Spirit. And, and if I got born again, everyone would think like I joined a cult or something. I mean, they, they would not understand. I, I just couldn't take it. So, I don't know, I'm going to keep it quiet. Um, it may be, and I think this is probably rare, and, and like an unethical career, you know, where it's like, I have to change my career. Um, it may be a sin. You know, I don't want to downplay this. Like, I, I know some lovely people that would have to break a relationship if they followed Christ. And it would break their hearts. And it may be that thing that just says, I can't follow you. They will be downhearted. They want to, but they say, I am not willing to give this up. It could be a lifestyle that you love. But I'm just saying that whatever your roadblock is, when you find it, You have to leave it. As surely as the disciples walked away from their livelihoods and the rich man had to leave his possessions. But, you know, the encouragement in this is that just like the rich man, if he had taken that first step and said, Jesus, you are the authority. I will do what you say. Then Jesus would empower him and help him. And he would help you too. So when I needed directions... I called somebody who took my call and gave me these answers. You know, I I am so glad that Jesus took the call. Like, he answered these questions. He doesn't duck. Um, I love the personal touches. You know, if you are a seeker here today, if you're a would-be disciple, and, like, you're saying, like, I'm still, you know, checking all this out. Um, If you were coming with a spirit that this man had, I think that Jesus would look you in the eye. And he would love you. And he would engage with your questions. Uh, If you're a struggling believer, I think he would call you like he called his disciples, children. He bolsters their young faith. You know, Jesus is not afraid of the questions. You know, those four questions that we put up before. Like, what, what, what is my destiny? Where am I going? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Who can be saved? What about us? Jesus isn't afraid of those questions at all. And may I say that his answers are a way of viewing reality that holds up to scrutiny. Uh, There are other ways of viewing this, to be sure. Uh, The ways to answer the question of where are we going with this? Annihilation. You're matter. You came from existing matter. You are nothing more than a bag of cells. 
and you're just doing what it takes to survive. Maybe you'll perpetuate yourself, maybe not. Hopefully you'll get some happiness. Hopefully you'll get your happiness without hurting too many other people. And then nothing. I'm not mocking. That's a worldview. It's a competing worldview, and it actually has coherent competing answers. Or you may come from a tradition where you believe that, like, we came, we are emanations of a divine being, and what we're trying to do, what we're doing here is trying to break out of conflict. And if I live it right, I can break out of conflict and finally be released from conflict. But if not, I'm going to come back and do it again, probably as a lesser life form. I'm not mocking. These are answers to these questions right here. But I just ask you this question. Even if you don't believe this, what we're speaking about today, don't you wish it were true? That there's a compassionate, honest teacher who's taking questions, who'd look you in the eye, who'd find where you're at, who would love you, who would love you enough to tell you the truth, even if it isn't what you wanted to hear? Such a teacher exists. And it is through his witnesses in this word that he is actually reaching out today. and He is saying, you come follow me. And I do believe this. I believe this with everything in my being, that if you take that first step in recognizing Jesus' authority and you take the pain of him putting his finger on your roadblock, that he will empower you. He will empower you. He'll empower you to lay down your pride, lay down your efforts at merit. Christian, laying down your attempts to strain through that eye on your own. <laughs> you know, we work so hard. We really don't believe that God is smiling, that he loves us. We think we've got to strain. Yeah, it's no different for us. That God, the God of the impossible, is willing today to transport you into his story, into his great story. And if you're wondering today, what about us? I feel like I've taken a lot of hits. Just remember, boy, God has not left you. Have faith. There's a great reversal coming, and it is already starting to break through, and there is great benefit. Let's pray. Father, I love your word. I just love the color of it and the, the feeling that is in it and the realism of it. And Lord, I'm just, I'm really burdened. Lord, I think there are some here today that um, have not put themselves under the authority of Jesus yet. And they may be feeling that that's an okay thing or they may be feeling a lot of hopelessness right now where they just can't believe. Lord, I am asking on their behalf, in the name of Jesus, that you would move in their hearts today, that they would be able to take that first step of acknowledging the authority of Jesus and at least putting aside the possibility that weak stuff that he is just a teacher. God, he is so much more than that, and he is calling us today. So Jesus, I pray today that you would reach out and that you would look somebody in the eyes and that you would see them. That above all, that through your spirit, they would see your love for them and that they would respond to that today.
and that there would be a glorious impossibility happening here today in this room of people going through the eye of a needle. People who would be sinking and drowning on their own merit, being transported from one kingdom into another kingdom. Father, I pray for your believers who may be suffering under a weight of persecution. Lord, in this age, we will have trouble. Lord, we know that. You promised it. You told us it would come. I pray for believers who feel estranged from their family because of a stance they've had to take. For those who are feeling alienated from people that they love dearly that they would realize that they have been given a ever-expanding family, spiritual family, and they would find joy in that. They would take heart that we will have eternal life. So, Lord, we're praying that you would do today what only you can do. And we are praying this in Jesus' matchless name.